Good morning, everybody. My name is Zachary, and it's a great pleasure to be with you here today. Um, I have the pleasure of serving Central Presbyterian Church up in Merced, California, um, as our administrative director. Um, but I'm also in the ordination process, uh, trying, you know, get getting ordained here in Eco, and so. Uh, one of the things they encourage us to do is to come and visit other churches in our presbyteries. And so it's a great pleasure to be with you all here this morning. And I've actually been really looking forward to coming and joining you today because this is actually my second time here at Lemon Cove Community Church. I had the pleasure of coming uh, to our last presbytery meeting here. I believe it was in October of last year. And I just had such a wonderful experience here at Lemon Cove. It was a great pleasure to be welcomed so well by your community. You guys fed us this like really elaborate breakfast and lunch and there was like five or six people like waiting on us and I was just really overcome by the sense of welcome and hospitality that you guys provided to us and so I've been looking forward to coming back and getting to be a part of um, your guys's gatherings again a second time and so I'm very excited to be here and to see all the wonderful things that you guys have going on here at this church. Uh, but before we dive into God's word together, would you join me in a quick word of prayer? Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. Pray, Father, that you'd bless the words that I say, that your word would remain, that all things that may, are not of you would be quickly forgotten. Teach us now, O oh God, form us and change us to be more like your son Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to get to know me a little bit, you would pretty quickly realize that one of my best fun facts is that I grew up in the country of the Czech Republic in Central Europe. My parents were missionaries. Uh, my dad coached pastors um, in a denomination in the Czech Republic. And uh, I lived there until I was 14 years old. And there was a lot of advantages or fun elements to living in Central Europe. But one of the things that I liked the most about living in the Czech Republic was that we got to take vacations to the city of Vienna. It was about a five-hour drive from us. It's the capital of the country of Austria. It's this old, historic city, and we would spend about half our time with my mom dragging us to museums and old palaces and rose gardens that I'm sure were wonderful and beautiful, but my 14-year-old self didn't appreciate it quite as much as I should have. But the reason I loved going to Vienna was because Vienna had some amazing pools. And we'd spend about half our time going to the public pools. And these pools were like so much better than the, you know, former Soviet like slab of cement filled with water that I had experienced growing up in my little mountain town. These pools were, they had like water slides, diving boards. You could get ice cream like in the pool complex itself. And they were these like pristine little public works filled with all of these very polite, quiet Austrian families. There were all of these old Austrian grandmothers who would sit in the hot tubs, and you'd have these little only children with like the floaties, you know, bobbing up and down, and like four adults, like making sure they don't drown. But then, like for five days a year, these pristine images of Austrian pools got completely ruined by six very loud Americans coming in and deciding that it was our vacation and time to enjoy the pool. Well, my family and I, we had a slightly different idea of what enjoying a public pool looked like. Our version of fun involved a lot more splashing and a lot less lap swimming. And uh, as we you know, enjoyed our time in these pools, our favorite activity was always wrestling. 
and if you've been around middle school boys, you know quite what this means. Uh, my two brothers and I would always try to gang up on my dad. And my dad was a youth pastor for about 15 years, and so he was a pro pool wrestler. And so we always knew that if you took on dad, you always lost. But, so we ganged up on him together, and we realized my dad had one fatal flaw, one fatal weakness. That was his eyesight. My dad is almost completely blind without his glasses on, and he can't wear contacts. So in the water, he couldn't see beyond like this far in front of him. And so we realized the best strategy was splash him and dogpile him. And so to counter this, my dad developed his signature move. I called it the shark attack. So my dad would drop under the water and come at us torpedo style. And right as he was underneath us, he would plant his feet on the ground of the pool, because the pool is only like up to his waist, right? And he would grab the kid above him, and he would jump out of the water and hurl this kid as far as he could, right? It was like something out of Jaws coming out underneath you and throwing you. So here we are in the pool, one fateful day, surrounded by a bunch of polite Austrians. And my brothers and I are all clumped together, and my dad deploys the shark attack. And we know we can't do anything to counter it. And so my brothers and I, we all just scatter. And you, you, you can probably guess where this is going, can't you? My dad goes under the water. He comes at us, and he starts tracking my younger brother by his signature red bathing suit. And as my brother tries to swim away and swim around people, my dad tracks him with the seasoned pro-veteran eyes of, you know, a youth pastor. And he eventually catches my younger brother, and he gets underneath him, and he grabs him by the red bathing suit. And he comes out of the water with this great yell and just hurls my brother across the pool. And then he turns around to see his three boys <laughs> staring at him with this look of horror. And my dad turns to see a very polite little Austrian kid in a red bathing suit swimming as fast as he can to the side of the pool. And this kid gets out, and he starts running to his parents. And they disappear for the rest of the day, never to be seen again by the Pitcher family. And I love this story, first, because I love you know, sharing my dad's embarrassing memories you know, in front of, of random churches. Um, but I, also, I love it because it illustrates a really important point. And that point is that it is dangerous when we have only a partial sight. When we can't see well, we can end up causing a lot of harm. And in our story today, we're going to see that actually we all have sight that's a little bit blurry. Our story today actually has three stories. But they're all united around this idea of a partial sight. So as we look at this today, I want us to see how this theme of partial sight shows up in our story and in our lives today. These three stories we have are pretty famous stories from the book of Mark. The first story is what you could call the two-stage healing, where Jesus heals a blind man in two parts. Then we have the story of when Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. And then right after that, we have a story where Jesus is teaching about the fact that he will suffer, and Peter rebukes him, and then Jesus ends up rebuking Peter. Now, all three of these stories illustrate this principle, what it means to have a partial sight as we look at Jesus. So let's see how this plays out in our first part of the story, the first story of the three. I'm going to read it to you one more time since it's kind of the, the main of the three stories we're going to look at today. 
says this, And they, being Jesus and the disciples, came to the town of Bethsaida. And some people brought to Jesus a blind man, a beggar, uh, to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, What do you see? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, when I was younger, this story was kind of confusing to me. I used to think, why is it that Jesus had to take two attempts to heal this guy? Was his blindness just so bad that it took like a double dose of Jesus' power? Like, was Jesus just not good enough to heal him the first time around? But that's clearly not what the author is intending. What this story is intending to show us is that sometimes there is a move of God that brings us from blindness to a partial sight. And that it takes another move of God, or in the case of some of us more, you know, persistently blind people, a second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth move of God to clarify our sight. Now, I think there's a couple things in our story that lead us to see this as the big theme. The first is you have to look at who the audience of this healing was. Now, we know that every time Jesus would heal, uh, he would do it for the purpose of teaching people something. And so in our story, we have to notice that Jesus gets to this town, and people bring him a beggar, and his first move is to lead him outside of the town, to isolate it to being just the man, Jesus, and the disciples. So this story, this healing is clearly done to teach the disciples something. It's not for the crowds, it's for the disciples. Now, as you look at it, the other reason we think it's for the disciples is that Jesus asked the man to answer, like he asked him questions. So Jesus, you know, does the first stage of the healing, and then he asks the guy, what do you see? And the guy answers, saying, oh, I see something, but people look like trees, I'm kind of like blurry here. And this isn't that like Jesus is like some optometrist having to say like, okay, this is the lens you got, is it working? All right, what about this one? Jesus knows what this guy is experiencing. Jesus is God, right? So why does he ask the man to state what he sees? Well, part of the reason is he wants the disciples to know what is happening. He wants the disciples to see that this man is being healed in stages. Because the big idea of the story is that the disciples themselves are just like this man that they also have a partial or blurry sight of who Jesus is. So Jesus does this healing, but then this actually interprets the next two stories for us. So we really see the point of the story as we keep reading. So as you keep reading, the second story is the story where Peter finally confesses Jesus as the Christ. And as, if you were to read different commentaries and stuff on this part of the book of Mark, you would see that a lot of scholars of the book of Mark think this is what we call the hinge of the book. That this story serves as the focal point on which the whole narrative of Mark turns. 
Before this, we get a lot of stories where Jesus is healing people and he's teaching, saying, the kingdom of heaven is here, I'm the Messiah. After this story, the narrative gets a lot darker. Jesus starts talking a lot more about the fact that he's going to suffer and die. This story is set also where Jesus is geographically the furthest away from Jerusalem. He's on the other side um, of the Jordan, and he's moving towards a Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a city that is named after Caesar. It's a Roman-occupied city way north of Jerusalem. And as Jesus is walking with his disciples, he asks them a, a pretty simple question. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples all answer with a couple different options, right? Some people think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the Old Testament prophets come back from the dead. And then Jesus turns the question on them in a kind of dramatic in-your-face moment where he says, but who do you say that I am? And we as the readers can imagine Jesus looking right at us, right? And saying the same thing to us. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's this big moment where the question is finally called. What will the the disciples say? Well, Peter steps forward and speaking kind of for everybody else, he, he says, what is the right answer, right? He gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. And if I was making an overly cheesy like, uh, Hollywood movie, this would be the moment where like, the clouds part and the sunbeam comes down on Peter and some angelic chorus starts singing hallelujah, right? Because finally they get it. Jesus has been living with these guys for months or maybe even years at this point. He's been doing miracle after miracle and teaching them for, for months and months. And finally it clicks. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And at this point, we're tempted to feel really good about the disciples, right? And Jesus is probably feeling like, finally, you got it. Now we can finally get over all of the questions and move forward together in our ministry. But the disciples, as usual, will eventually let us down. Because after this hinge, Jesus turns around with his disciples and he starts walking back to Jerusalem. And he starts the teachings that are meant to clarify what it means that he's the Messiah. You could say that the whole first part of the book of Mark was to move the disciples from blindness to this partial sight. Where they can finally know that yes, you are the Messiah But now Jesus starts that second stage of the healing of their sight to say, what does it mean that I am the Messiah? So Jesus starts teaching about the fact that he is going to suffer and die. And Peter doesn't like this. So he gets up in front of everyone and tells Jesus off, how dare you say you're going to die? And then Jesus... Calls, you know, calls Peter on it. He can't just let that slide, so he turns around, and he sees that everybody's watching him, and he eventually answers Peter with one of the harshest lines we get from Jesus. Peter looks, Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not thinking of things from a heavenly perspective, but only from an earthly perspective. We see here 
that Peter and the disciples understood in part, but not in full. Their sight was like my dad's sight in that pool. Pretty blurry and insufficient. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us here. He eventually will give his disciples a true understanding of who he is. But before we jump there, I want us to spend a moment this morning thinking about the causes and then the remedy of Peter and the disciples' partial sight. I want to offer thoughts on two potential causes of why they misunderstood who Jesus was. And then we'll look at the remedy for all of our blurry sight. I think the two causes at play here were first that Peter and the disciples were unwilling to suffer. And secondly, Peter had cultural preconceptions of who the Messiah was that he had to let go of. So he wasn't willing to suffer. He had preconceptions of the Messiah. So let's look at this first one, his unwillingness to suffer. I think Peter wants to tell off Jesus because he himself doesn't want to suffer. I think it's natural. You know, he sees that if his, you know, his leader, his Messiah, dies, then it's very likely that his closest followers will too. And Peter isn't really wanting to sign up for a life that dies. And I think I'm sometimes tempted to, like, condemn Peter here. But if I'm being really honest with myself, it's kind of natural to want to avoid pain and suffering. I do. I think we're all kind of programmed to want to avoid the things that are hard. And when we're confronted with the need to suffer, we often react. But as we really read the message of Jesus, if you were to continue to read past Mark chapter 8, you'll see again and again that Jesus describes the life of his disciples as one of carrying a cross. He consistently says that to follow Jesus is to suffer, is to lay down your life, is to go through hardship. And we come to see in this not that you know, our lives are just going to be miserable when we're Christians. Like Joy is a big part of the Bible too, but the big idea of this is that when God is leading us and directing our lives, the goal isn't to make us just have a wonderful time and enjoy ourselves and party it up here on this earth. But God is in fact directing our lives for a greater purpose, to teach us who he is and to help us show our world the wonders of who God is and what it means to follow him. And I think that helps us refocus or recenter what it means when we suffer. It's a change of perspective for us. I've been thinking about this recently a little bit because I've been reading a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy named Pete Scazzaro as a part of my ordination process. They make everybody go, going through ordination and eco read this book and just this week, we were reading a chapter that Schizero calls Moving Through the Wall. And in this chapter, the author describes how sometimes we have hardships that are just hard, that are just trials. But sometimes our trials bring us to walls in our heart. Walls that prop up idols. You know, those things that we've allowed to be central to our lives that aren't God. 
Or maybe our walls are propping up a misconception of who God is and how he's going to treat us. And it's in those seasons of hardship that we come to realize that we have actually been seeing things wrong. And we're faced with a decision. Do we stop at the wall and say, I'm okay with that being there? And I'm just going to, you know, like grit my teeth and wait out this season of hardship and hope that it's just going to move on. I'm going to get over it one day. Or will we do the hard internal work of moving through the wall? Of evaluating whether I have actually propped up a misconception of who God is in my own heart. I think it's in these seasons, if we're really going to understand that God is someone who brings us to seasons of trial and suffering, then it makes us have to say that in every season of trial, we should ask that question of, has God brought me here for a reason? To challenge something that that I've misunderstood, or an area where my faith is too weak. So I think, just like Peter, we often can misunderstand the big idea of why we're here. We can think that we're here to just enjoy ourselves. But then we run into these seasons of suffering, and we can disengage. Or we can say that Jesus leads us through what is often called the J-curve. We go down to go up. That We follow a Savior who leads us to die so that we might rise again. But let's get applicational here for a second for you guys. I think you as a church are probably going through a hard season, are you not? Two weeks ago, you guys lost a pastor. That's hard. That's a trial. And I'm sure there's a whole set of emotions that you're all feeling from that. Maybe you're feeling overlooked or abandoned. Maybe you're feeling nervous about what's going to happen with the future here of our church. Maybe some of you are feeling nervous that you have to now do more at your church, right? And you're wondering, how are we going to cover all of the bases here in the interim between pastors? So I want to just encourage you, though, for a second, that God is someone who often leads us through seasons of trial for a reason. He is a God who calls us to follow him as we die to ourselves. And so what would it look like for you guys to really question what God is doing in your lives as a congregation in this season? It can be tempting, like Peter, to try to push away the hardship. To say, God, this isn't what, you sh- what you know, we deserve. This isn't the conception of life I thought we would have. Or we can choose to say, you know what, God, it's different than I thought. It's less comfortable than I thought, but what are you doing in the midst of this? So I'd encourage you as you go through this, start asking those questions of, is there a way that God is refining your sight of himself through this season as a church? Now, I'm a visitor. I don't actually know what that looks like for you, but I would encourage you guys to continue to think about that. So that's one of the reasons I think Peter has a lack of sight, of clarity in his vision of Jesus, is because he does not want to follow a savior who suffers. I think the second reason that Peter does not see Jesus clearly is that he has cultural ideas of who the Messiah was. Now to understand what is probably in the back of Peter's mind when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, 
we need to understand what the Jews and what the Romans thought about the Messiah and their saviors and power. The Jews had been reading the Old Testament scriptures for generations. They'd been reading that one day God would send them a savior to renew the kingdom of David and to lead them into the new Jerusalem. And they thought that this person would be a military figure, a political leader, who would come and crush their enemies in battle and would reestablish a new country governed in Jerusalem. So their conception of the Messiah was actually predominantly political. Now on the other side, you also had the Romans. The Romans worshipped a variety of gods. We, we would call that polytheism. But soon before the time of Jesus, they moved from being a republic to being an empire governed by a dictator who took the title of Caesar. And the Caesars had started to develop a cult of personality around them. They started to be worshipped as a deity. And they started to pass these laws that said, you can worship whoever you want to as long as you also pray to Caesar. Because Caesar is the one who will help you conquer in battle. Caesar is the one who will raise up armies that will destroy anybody else and take over the whole world. The Roman conception of Messiah was Caesar, the person who would come in battle to conquer. So both the Jews and the Romans had an idea that they were going to be delivered by a military conqueror. So this would have been in the back of Peter's mind. Now, if that's your conception of the Messiah, imagine how Peter envisioned his own life in the midst of that. If Jesus is going to become the king that rules in Jerusalem, and Peter is kind of his right-hand man, then Peter will gain a lot of potential fame and status and glory. He might be given military commands or a position of authority in the government once Jesus finally becomes the king that Peter always wanted him to be. And if you imagine for a second what it would be like for Peter to be following Jesus, we have to remember that Peter was a, was a, a fisherman. He was kind of a nobody. And then he left his whole life, his family and his friends, to follow this teacher who was also kind of a nobody. And he probably faced a lot of opposition in that. People probably, his family probably wanted him to come back and settle down like any good Jewish boy. His friends probably made fun of him for leaving behind, you know, his job and everything to follow this Jesus. And I can just imagine that in those seasons where people were ridiculing Peter, in his mind he must have been thinking, one day I'm going to be the guy in Jerusalem who has all the money, has all the power, and then they're going to know that I made the right choice. Then they're going to see that no, following Jesus was the right way. I could imagine that that thought of what Jesus was going to do for Peter could have been a great encouragement for him in seasons of hardship. But then, Peter hears Jesus say, he's not going to be the Messiah who comes and kills and conquers, but he's going to be the Messiah who dies. And Peter is then challenged by seeing that his preconception of his power and the status he was going to have in his society are being shaken. 
is going to crumble. And he has to see that following Jesus is not what he thought it was. It's less glamorous. It's less, you know, praiseworthy in the eyes of the people around him. It involves a little bit more suffering. More shame, less fame. And he has to figure out how to deal with that. Now, I think some of us here in the U.S. can face some similar pressures, can't we? A lot of us grew up in a time when going to church was really praised by our whole society. When we were younger, we were told that if you go to church, you're, you're a good moral person, right? And there's still a lot of places in the U.S., mainly small towns like Lemon Cove, where that kind of ethos is still there. But especially on a national level, that narrative has changed a little bit, hasn't it? Being associated with a church is not always seen as a positive anymore. Sometimes it's seen as neutral or even negative, as dangerous. Christians aren't seen in the same light that we were seen when many of you guys were children. And I think a lot of us are struggling with this reality that the position we hold in our society is not what we thought it would be when we started following Jesus. And just like Peter, we're coming to grips with the fact that we follow a Savior that gives us more shame than fame sometimes. And it's, this is one of the things we have to figure out, isn't it? How do we envision ourselves in a society that's different than the ones that many of us grew up in? So we see a similarity to Peter there. I think there's a second, though, connection to the experiences of Peter and the experiences of many of us here in the church. And that is that so often today, our politics is taking on a religious tone. In Peter's day, the religious and the political leaders were the same. So his conception of Jesus was wrapped up in politics. Today, our conception of our purposes and, you know, for what many people would constitute religion is wrapped up in our politics as well. I've been reading this book recently called How to Know a Person by this author named David Brooks. He writes for the New York Times. It's not a Christian book. Um, it's all about how to have, like, emotional intelligence and see people and have good conversations. But in this, David Brooks talks about how people are becoming increasingly isolated because of a wide variety of sociological factors, many of which have to do with you know, the screens we carry around in our pockets. And he talks about how our isolation has actually changed the way we look at politics, and how it's fueled a sense of finding our whole purpose and identity in our politics. So I wanted to read you a little part of this. Um, it's a slightly lengthier passage, but bear with me. Brooks writes this, he says that according to a research study conducted by the American Enterprise Institute, lonely people are seven times more likely than non-lonely people to say that they are active in politics. Seven times more likely. For people who feel disrespected and unseen, politics is a seductive form of social therapy. Politics seems to offer a comprehensive moral landscape. 
he's going to, and this is the landscape it offers us, ready? I'll put it in italics. He says, we are the children of light, are facing off against them, the children of darkness. He then says that, secondly, politics seems to offer us a sense of belonging. This is the narrative it gives us, ready? I'm on the barricade with the other members of my tribe. And finally, politics seems to offer us an arena of moral action. And this is the narrative politics offers us. To be moral in this world, you do not have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow. You just have to be liberal or conservative. You just have to feel properly enraged at the people you find contemptible. I think this, I was reading this and I thought it did a great job of summarizing what we were seeing in our culture, which is where as Christianity takes less of a central place in our social conception of what the good life is, who we are as a people, our country is grappling with how do we answer the questions of ultimate meaning? What are we here for? How do we build a good society? And we're increasingly looking to our political leaders to answer those questions for us. And this is actually very similar to the life, the, uh, the social climate in Jesus' day. In his day, politics and religion were wrapped up together. In his day, the Jews were facing this kind of existential question of how to deal with the Romans. And there were two major camps. The people who wanted to side with the Romans, the minority, or the majority who wanted to oppose them and kick them out and start a revolution. People seemed to be getting more radicalized, more divided in Jesus' day. And unity and common purpose seemed really fleeting and impossible. But Jesus did not let that moment define him. He did not let the pressures of his day determine how he presented himself. He did not conform to say, I'll become the political leader you wanted me to be. Instead, he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to be the Messiah who dies. I'm going to be the one who leads you to a better place, but by dying to rise again. And what he calls his disciples to is to say, don't let those other things cloud who you think that I am. Don't let these other conceptions of power, of what the Messiah is, define how you see me. Instead, listen to me and look to me. And I will lead you on a path that is different than you thought it would be, but is better than you can imagine it ever would be. And so here we stand. I think all of us seeing that we too, just like the disciples, can be tempted to have a blurry sight. There are other things that tempt to cloud out our vision of Jesus, twist how we think of God. But we have to take this very seriously. Because if we don't, we're going to end up like my dad in the pool. Flailing around, attacking the wrong kid. And as I, actually, as I think about my dad in the pool, I imagine what it would be like. My dad in the pool is kind of a funny story, right? But imagine if my dad had blurry sight his whole life. Imagine if he never got glasses. And he just walked around his whole life only being able to see this far in front of his face. 
How many times do you have to run into people and hurt people for someone to look at him and say, Ken, get it together. Take seriously the fact that you can't see and try to remedy that. I think the call to us is to take seriously the call to see Jesus. As we go through an election cycle especially, we're going to be tempted to let a lot of different things cloud what we think Jesus is. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave the blind man blind. Does he? He offers him sight. So let's look back at our first story. Jesus does the first stage of the healing. And then he asks the man, what do you see? And this guy then says, I see people moving around, but they look like trees. And I sometimes wonder what was going through that guy's head at that moment. You know, does he feel kind of stupid? Saying, oh yeah, I can't quite see as well as I should. Was he tempted to save face, to deflect, to say, oh yeah, I I can see enough, don't worry, I'm good. But instead, he acknowledges that he has a need. He's basically saying, Jesus, heal me again. I need you. And Jesus does. He rises to the occasion and heals the man a second time. As I think about my own lack of clarity on who Jesus is, I'm comforted to know that when the man asks and recognizes he needs a better sight, Jesus gives it to him. So as we end here today, I want us to consider what it would look like for us to acknowledge that our sight is sometimes a little bit blurry. That sometimes, instead of seeing people, we see trees. That some other things crowd out how we think about Jesus. What would it look like for us to ask Jesus to clarify our sight of him? To continue to teach us, to break down those things that we've been chasing instead of him? What would it look like for us to say that we're okay with following a path that is more pain or shame than fame? To follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Because when we do this, I think we gain something that's wonderful, don't we? We gain a clear sight of the Savior who gives us eternal life. And that's more wonderful than anything else we can be chasing, isn't it? So I want to leave you on a note of hope. You have a Savior who came and died, who gave his life so that you would know who he is. And he is a Savior who has patiently worked with his disciples to continue to clarify what his role is and who he was. And as we continue to follow Jesus, he'll do the same for us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we confess that we at times do not see you rightly. That we at times have let our own desires or the things that our culture has taught us blur our sight of you. Lord, we come before you asking that you would give us a true sight. That you would finish the work that you started in us. That you would continue to help us be discipled and sanctified as we follow follow towards you. Help us, Lord, to choose the road that is the road of the cross. And to do so joyfully. 
And Father, as we follow you, may you continue to teach us, may you continue to uphold us, may you teach us to live the life that is truly worth living. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who does not let us sit in a blurry sight, but that you are a God who clarifies who you are, that you are a God who is faithful to us and guides us ever forward toward your son, Jesus. May you continue the work in us that you started, we pray in your name. Amen.